the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another edition of The Dan Proft Show. Happy to have you with me. Again, follow us at danproftshow.com uh, or on Twitter at at Dan Prof Show, or my name, at Dan Prof. That's P-R-O-F-T. This way we can keep in touch. Uh, starting this evening's show, just talking a little bit about, uh, a little bit about uh, some of the White House defense team's arguments that we didn't get to or get to in the necessary depth on Monday evening's show. And that was some of the offerings, particularly from Alan Dershowitz in the evening, Monday evening, and also... Patrick Philbin, the White House Deputy Counsel, who I thought has been very good. He was very good on Saturday. He was very good again on Monday. And I want to stitch together a couple of things they said, because it's sort of about standard setting here before you even get into the particulars of the case. Is this a legitimate exercise of power? And what is the constitutional power the House has and the Senate has, as well as the responsibilities attendant to those respective powers? Alan Dershowitz started there and uh, used a pronouncement from No Justice, No Peace, Maxine Waters as the wrong way to think about impeachment. Of course, somebody's got to be the bad example. Maxine Waters is always happy to volunteer. Her lawless view of impeachment, that uh, it is whatever Congress says it is, that's not what it is. Congresswoman Maxine Waters recently put it more succinctly in the context of a presidential impeachment. Here's what she said. Impeachment is whatever Congress says it is. There is no law. But this lawless view would place Congress above the law. It would place Congress above the Constitution. For Congress to ignore the specific words of the Constitution itself and substitute its own judgments would be for Congress to do what it is accusing the president of doing. And no one is above the law, not the president and not Congress. This is precisely the kind of view expressly rejected by the framers who feared having a president serve at the pleasure of the legislature. It wasn't just uh, Alan Dershowitz's opinion. This was an opinion he was offering based on the foundation he had set forth in his arguments about the founders' intentions when drafting the clauses that are enshrined to the Constitution and relevant in this proceeding. Very important. And it, it was a nice little way he turned the no one is above the rule of law, no one is above the law, not the president, not Congress, way to turn that sort of back on House managers, House Democrats, who spend much of the last several months, no one is above the law, the president is not above the law, no one is above the law. Well, no one is above the law, the president is not above the law. Also, you members of Congress, you're not above the law either. It was a nice, uh, friendly amendment that Dershowitz offered. And he went on to then tackle the questions that really were outlined by Pat Cipollone, or Cipollone, the White House counsel, at the outset of the trial, which is not only do you not have a case, you don't even have any charges. That line just reverberates uh, in my mind 
over the last week. I thought that was just a, a great one-sentence way to encapsulate the overreach to be generous that this impeachment has been from the beginning and continues to be to present. But those charges, abuse of power and obstruction of Congress, do those even constitute charges before you get to any suggestion of evidence to support those assertions? Do abuse of power and obstruction of Congress constitute impeachable offenses? The relevant history answers that question clearly in the negative. Each of these charges suffers from the vice of being, quote, so vague a term that they will be equivalent of tenure at the pleasure of the Senate, to quote, again, the father of our Constitution. Abuse of power is an accusation easily leveled by political opponents against controversial presidents. In our long history, many presidents have been accused of abusing their power. And Dershowitz actually went through myriad examples from George Washington to present, where not many presidents have been accused of abuse of power. Virtually every president has been accused of abusing his power by political opponents. What's new there? You know, you go for the, the you need specificity here when it comes to high crimes and misdemeanors. And that's exactly what the Democrats haven't offered. They offer the vague generalities so broad that anything could fit under that umbrella, including the anything that they've put together. Uh, Dershowitz then talked about what the specifics are with uh, respect to what the House managers have presented. And it is all mens rea suggestions about the president's motivations, state of mind. That's the standard you're going to set to remove a president from office. You know, what was what portion of his motivation and a particular decision was national interest and what portion, some or all, was personal interest? And how do you separate these mixed motives? Whether the president's real reason, the ones actually in his mind, are at the time legitimate. What a standard. What was in the president's mind, actually in his mind? What was the real reason? Would you want your actions to be probed for what was the real reason why you acted? Even if a president were, and it clearly shows in my mind that the framers could not have intended this psychoanalytic approach to presidential motives to determine the distinction between what is impeachable and what is not. The only thing broader than uh, abuse of power would be uh, to go to the president's state of mind and start to divine what he was actually thinking, ignoring what people ultimately said. You have to not only impute state of mind with respect to President Trump, you also have to do it in this case with President Zelensky, don't you? Because The Ukrainian president has otherwise said he felt no pressure, didn't know there was a quid pro quo, and not that a quid pro quo is an impeachable matter either. That's for a later discussion. But there was uh, nothing untoward. And, of course, we know in terms of the actual outcome, aid was delivered, no investigation was launched, so there was no exchange of one for the other. But, but, But I thought Dershowitz did a nice job framing that. I mean, thinking about being in the business of deciding what percentage of the president's decision was motivated by X interest versus Y interest versus Z interest, and using that as the basis to pursue removing a president from office. That's the standard you want to set here? I don't think so. Now, when you got over to uh, Patrick Philbin, going back to Patrick Philbin, uh, he tackled two other topic areas. Uh, One was the 
process here. Uh, the importance of due process as another standard of American jurisprudence and, and our justice system. And uh, then the remedy for a violation of that standard. Uh, he uh, talked about uh, the president failing to receive due process through the almost the entirety of the House Democrats investigation. In front of the House Judiciary Committee, that Manager Nadler offered the president due process, and I explained why that was illusory. There was no genuine offer there, because before any hearings began, other than the law professor's seminar on December 4th, the speaker had already determined the outcome, already said there were going to be articles of impeachment, and the Judiciary Committee had informed the counsel's office that they had no plans to call any fact witnesses or have any factual hearings whatsoever. It was all done, it was locked in, it was baked. And there was something else hanging over that when they had offered purportedly to allow the president some due process rights. And that was a special provision in the rules for the House Judiciary Committee proceedings, also unprecedented, that allowed the House Judiciary Committee to deny the president any due process rights at all if he continued to refuse to turn over documents or not allow witnesses to testify. So that If the president didn't give up his privileges and immunities that he had been asserting over executive branch confidentiality interests, if he didn't comply with what the House Democrats wanted, then it was up to Chairman Adler potentially to say no rights at all. And there's a term for that in the law. It's called an unconstitutional condition. You can't condition someone's exercise of some rights on their surrendering other constitutional rights. So there's no due process rights for POTUS in either of the first two rounds, the secret hearings of House Intel, the public show trial of House Intel. You just heard there, with respect to House Judiciary, the offer of due process was illusory because it presented an unconstitutional condition. And then the third uh, failure to abide due process was uh, the shift taint uh, because of his whistleblower contact. His, his at least his staff's contact with the whistleblower. Um, and so what Philbin goes on to argue is the remedy for this failure to provide due process to the president of the United States is not for the Senate to do the House's job for them. How could that be a remedy? The remedy is you had uh, no case. You got no charges. You offer no due process. The remedy is we shouldn't be in the Senate. The remedy is acquittal. No witnesses. That's the remedy to repeat. So no charges, no case, no due process. The remedy, no witnesses, no conviction. Pretty simple. This is the Dan Prof Show. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and one of the reasons why there hasn't been much enthusiasm certainly not as much as expected by many for some sort of witness swap after the bombshell dud, really, of a New York Times story on Bolton's alleged manuscript, because, of course, we're going off anonymous sources. It is the New York Times. Can't have named sources. You've got to go with the anonymous sources. 
but uh, assuming that the excerpts of the manuscript are at least resemble the truth of what Bolton wrote, uh, the ex- expectation was, well, it wouldn't just be, you know, wobbly Mitt Romney that would uh, call for uh, Bolton to testify and open the door to witnesses. It would be others. There hasn't been that much enthusiasm for it. And one of the reasons is because of the quality of the case that's been put on by the White House defense team. And uh, we are just talking about uh, Dershowitz and Philbin yesterday. Uh, but also, it's worth noting that uh, Pam Bondi did a nice job. I didn't get to this in yesterday's show, but I wanted to get to what uh, sh- her performance as well, specifically on the relevance of, of really Biden, Inc. There's a focus on Hunter, but I would say, you know, you can't really separate Hunter and Joe, which in part is why all of this talk about a one witness for one witness. Um, I mean, if you if if I was forced to into that position of uh, their Republicans are going to grant Bolton. Well, then I would take Joe, not Hunter, because, of course, you want the principal, not just his, uh, you know, the idiot son that was uh, flying off of dad's name and office in order to enrich himself. You want the decision maker. You want the person that was using his office uh, in, in, in an obviously conflict, conflictual way to benefit his son, whether it was intended or not. It's an appearance of a conflict that should never have been allowed to stand. But OK, uh, that's not getting a lot of support. And I, I go back again, the case that is being put on. And so to Pam Bondi. And uh, the the way that she frames the Biden Burisma issue was really good. And again, this is a door that Adam Schiff opened Adam Schiff and the other Democrats, in part because they said that any suggestion into uh, impropriety with respect to Biden family, Biden and Burisma was baseless. OK, well, uh, now you've made an assertion that can be challenged and uh Pam Bondi understands why they're saying baseless and what the implications are if it were to turn out that it's not so baseless. Why did they invoke Biden or Burisma over 400 times? The reason they needed to do that is because they are here saying that the president must be impeached and removed from office for raising a concern. And that's why we have to talk about this today. They say sham. They say baseless. Because they say this because if it's okay for someone to say, hey, you know what? Maybe there's something here worth raising. Then their case crumbles. Because they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that there is no basis to raise this concern. But that's not what public records show. Here are just a few of the public sources that flagged questions surrounding this very same issue. The United Kingdom Serious Fraud Office, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent, Hunter Biden's former business associate, an ABC White House reporter, Good Morning America, ABC, The Washington Post, The New York Times, Ukrainian law enforcement, and the Obama State Department itself. 
And then, of course, Bondi went on to provide a couple, uh, some more meat on the bones of a couple of those examples she just rattled off. But just remember the top line. Uh, if it's not baseless, then there is no quid, no illicit quid pro quo, uh, a quid pro quo that was uh, all about the president's political interest, not about the nation's interest, according to House managers. And if you have all of these other individuals and institutions, media outlets and government agencies, including the Obama White House, for goodness sakes, if they're raising concerns about Biden and Burisma, then how is it inappropriate for President Trump to raise the same concerns that they did? Curious question. Bondi, as I said, uh, uh, provides more color here. One example, John Carl, ABC News, Jay Carney, then the White House press secretary, President Obama's press secretary, on the issue of Hunter Biden and his position at Burisma. Hunter Biden has now taken a position with the largest oil and gas company, holding company in Ukraine. Is there any concern about at least the appearance of a, uh, of a conflict there? To the vice president. I would refer you uh, to the vice president's office. I saw those reports. You know, Hunter Biden and other uh, members of the Biden family are obviously private citizens, and uh, where they work is not uh, does not reflect an endorsement by the administration uh, or by the vice president or president. But I would refer you to the vice president's office. Yeah, and the next day uh, there was a Washington Post story about it. So they were. Media outlets, ABC, Washington Post, raising the issue. If it was legitimate for them to raise it, then why was it not legitimate for Trump? Oh, do we have to we have to go back to the thought crimes? We have to crawl inside President Trump's head and distinguish his motivations from Jonathan Carl's or the Washington Post. They had good motivations as journalists. He had bad motivation as bad orange man. Pam Bondi also uh, reintroducing senators to some of the testimony from Deputy Assistant Secretary of State George Kent, who testified at the House impeachment hearings. This was not presented to the Senate, of course. George Kent raising questions about Hunter. In a briefing call with the National Security Staff of the Office of the Vice President in February of 2015, I raised my concern that Hunter Biden's status as a board member could create the perception of a conflict of interest. But House managers didn't tell you that. This is all while Hunter Biden sat on Burisma's board. Did Hunter Biden stop working for Burisma? No. Did Vice President Biden stop leading the Obama administration's foreign policy efforts in Ukraine? No. In the meantime, Vice President Biden is still at the forefront of the U.S.-Ukraine policy. He pledges a billion dollars loan guarantee to Ukraine contingent on its progress in rooting out corruption. Around the same time of the $1 billion announcement, other people raised the issue of a conflict. Good for thee, but not for me? Uh, is a legitimate question for President Trump to ask, right? It was okay for them, but not for me. What's the distinction on the merits? Difficult to discern one. Uh, the House manager's case hits a dead end no matter which direction they turn. And this is just another example.
This is the Dan Prof Show. Hey, but don't you want to go down? Like some junkie cosmonaut. A million miles below their feet. A million miles, a million miles. You're listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, Don Lamone over at CNN has given us some new bul- uh, bulletin board material. You can put the phrase, credulous boomer rube, right next to deplorables. This is a phrase that came out of a wonderful panel discussion on Don Lamone's show on CNN with uh, Rick Wilson, who's a Never Trump, GOP-ish type consultant, and Wajahat Ali, who is a contributing op-ed writer to the New York Times. They were ostensibly uh, discussing the incident between Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and an NPR reporter. Uh, She asked a question that was outside of the guidelines that she had agreed to in conducting an interview with Pompeo. He got upset, put a map down. Can you even find Ukraine on the map? She was asking about Ukraine in the context of impeachment uh, and uh, uh, and then was uh, kicked off the uh, uh, secretary of state's plane in terms of being part of the the press gaggle following him around the world. Uh, so this was the basis for the discussion. But it uh, quickly devolved into, uh, well, uh, I don't know, a bad Saturday Night Live skit, which is sort of every Don Lamont show. Obviously, it's false. And look, he also knows deep in his heart that Donald Trump couldn't find Ukraine on a map if you had the letter U and a picture of an actual physical crane (laughs) next to it. He knows that this is, you know, an an administration defined by ignorance of the world. And so that's partly him playing to their base and playing to their audience. uh, You know, the, the, the credulous boomer rube demo that backs Donald Trump. Um, that, that wants to think that, that, that Donald Trump's a smart one, and they're oh, y'all, y'all, y'all elitists are dumb. <laughs> you, you elitists with your geography and your maps and your spelling, even though my your math and your reading. Yeah, you're reading, you know, your geography, knowing other countries, sipping your latte. <laughs> All those lines on the map. <laughs> <laughs> Only them elitists know where Ukraine is. Sorry, I apologize. But by, but by the way, oh my god! But, but, but you know what? But, but it was Rick's fault. I blame Rick. Oh but, you know, but, but in all honesty, but all, blame you know what Rick. NPR should do? Why not? Sorry, hold on. You, wait, wait. Can yeah, I tell give you what, a second. You know, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> that was good. Sorry, Rick. You, that you, was a good one. I needed that. Okay, so listen. Can, Let's can get I tell back you what, to business and, here. Quite the giggle fest among the boys, huh? I just want you just got to have to hear that and uh, just keep that at the ready, much like Hillary's deplorables comment from four years ago and all of the other indignities. The uh, Trump voters have suffered, regardless of the bases for your vote for Trump or your support from Trump. People don't care. I mean, when I say people, I mean, the left does not care. I'm talking about the left from the actual intellects on the left, the business titans on the left. All the way down, way, way down to the pseudo-intellectual dilettantes you just heard from who are just uh, trying to 
stay in the spotlight and uh, scrape for ongoing relevance. Just understand the disdain they have for you, the Trump voter. So when uh, election time rolls around and they start to pander uh, or the candidates pander, whether it's at the congressional level or the federal level or since local races and state races get federalized these days, the local and state level, just remember that moment because it was an unvarnished presentation of their actual attitude towards you. doesn't matter what your education level is, what your income is, what your skill sets are. It doesn't matter. The entire litmus test comes down to whether or not you voted for or will vote for Trump. And that's the reaction you get. And remember who we're dealing with, too, in terms of these uh, brickbats we must suffer. Yeah. Take, take heed. This is the real Don Lamone on the real CNN, isn't it? What if it was hijacking or terrorism or mechanical failure or pilot error? But what if it was something fully that we don't really understand? A lot of people have been asking about that, about black holes and on and on and on and all of these conspiracy theories. Let's look at this. Uh, Noah says, what else can you think about? Black hole, Bermuda Triangle. And then Deji says, huh, just like the movie Lost. And of course, it's also, they're also referencing the Twilight Zone, which has a very similar plot. That's what people are saying. I know it's preposterous, but it, is it preposterous, you think, Mary? Well, it is a black hole. about, you know, a small black hole would suck in our entire universe. So we know it's not yeah, that. The triangle is often weather and uh, Lost is a TV show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, I know it's preposterous, these questions I'm reading from random tweeters about the disappearance of MH370. But is it preposterous, Mary? Department of Transportation Inspector General? Yes, Don. It's preposterous and you're preposterous. And we won't forget. This is Dan Proft. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, James Freeman writing in the Wall Street Journal. Are Michael Bloomberg and Tom Steyer spending some of their fortunes on long shot candidacies because? They figure the rivals for the nomination will end up taking it anyway. It's a great question. Have you seen these numbers? Have you seen these plans from the top four Democrat socialist candidates? Biden and Manic and Pete, Chief Warren and Bolshevik Bernie. Have you seen these? Wall Street Journal uh, editorial board put together a nice chart for easy review. And it's uh, pretty, pretty, pretty remarkable. It's not just. Bernie and his impersonator, Elizabeth Warren. As the uh, editorial board opines, experts can debate how much a top rate that affects uh, how much the top rate affects the incentive to work for, say, a dentist or an engineer, whether a two or three or five percentage point rate increase has an effect on the wider economy. But there's little doubt a new twelve and a half percent tax would depress incentives and reduce America's competitive advantage for high skilled workers, make the tax structure more typical of European countries. Yeah. Uh, So let's look at this top individual rate. Current law, 37 percent. Under Biden, 
Buttigieg and Warren, it goes to 40. Under Sanders, it goes to 52. So there's you know, two topic areas, labor income and investment income, labor income. Top marginal rate would increase by almost 50% under Bernie Sanders from 37 to 52%. He's your Democrat socialist front runner at present as we talk tonight. Uh, the uh, When you include... Uh, all of the other taxes on labor, Medicare tax, so forth, payroll tax. Uh, by the way, the uh, payroll tax rate, uh, 12.5% uh, across the board, except Warren, 14.8. The top marginal rate, which is, uh, so all in, top marginal rate, labor income, 40.2% now, 518 under Biden, 518 under Buttigieg, 535 under Warren, Sixty nine point two under Sanders. Sixty nine point two. From 40 now. And in the investment income side, the top rate is 20. Biden, Buttigieg, Warren would all double it. Thirty nine point six. Sanders with two and a half times it to fifty two. The top uh, marginal rate. Uh, when you again again include other investment income taxes like the net investment income tax, top marginal rate right now twenty three point eight capital gains would go to forty three four for uh, Biden and Buttigieg, fifty five eight for Warren, and fifty eight two. I mean fifty five eight for Sanders and fifty eight two for Warren. Wow. Warren and Sanders would come close to tripling the capital gains tax rate. I mean, do you have any idea what that would do to investment income? I mean, uh, to 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 investment and by extension, our economy. Those are remarkable increases, transformative increases, transformative in the sense that we would be a government centric economy, not a private sector centric economy. This, uh, if you think, oh, this is just, you know, some sort of a Friedmanite whistling past the graveyard and hates government and, uh, you know, is, uh, doesn't like the Democrats just doing the Republican Party's bidding. Well, read Brett Stevens, never Trumper in The New York Times. Brett Stevens piece. Anyone, anyone but Trump? Not so fast. Here's how he starts. Donald Trump is a lawless president, a revolting person who richly deserved his impeachment and in a better world would be convicted in the Senate, removed from the White House. That's my view, and it's the view of a plurality, albeit a narrow plurality, of the American people. Ergo, every American who feels this way has a moral obligation to vote for whoever winds up being the Democrat nominee, even if the nominee turns out to be Bernie or Elizabeth, right? Well, hang on. Hang on, says Brett Stevens. The idea that um, Trump represents some sort of existential threat to our constitutional order and Warren and Sanders don't is one Brett Stevens is having a hard time buying. He uh, writes it falls short, actually, in three ways. First, the argument overstates the extent to which Trump's presidency has eroded the foundations of liberal democracy at home and abroad. This is never Trumper, remember, Brett Stevens. You heard the opening paragraph of this piece. Not a fan of the orange man. 
But he writes, has Trump abandoned NATO? No. Has he lifted sanctions on Russia? No. Has he closed the borders to all immigrants? No. Did the president steal the midterms or stop Congress from impeaching him? No. Has he significantly suppressed the press? Again, no. So other than rhetorically, how unconventional is he really? Or how has he disrupted the constitutional norms on the merits? Not because you don't like him personally or his personality is what you don't like. Second, the argument understates the radicalism of what Sanders and Warren propose. Theirs is not a painless policy mas- uh, massage in the direction of a kind of gentler economy. No, it certainly isn't. That's an understatement, given the numbers that I just uh, presented. But he, he recognizes how devastating what those two are proposing would be for the American economy, would be on the American economy. He cites research by Brian Riedel over at the Manhattan Institute. By his calculations, the federal government would double in size under Bernie Sanders if he were to enact the proposals that he has advanced. Half the American workforce would be employed by the government. The federal government would double and half the American workforce would be employed by the government if what they are proposing became reality. Uh, Total outlays would reach $97.5 trillion on top of the nearly $90 trillion the federal, that federal, state, and local governments are projected to spend over the next decade. I mean, it is remarkable what they are proposing in terms of the government takeover. Forget just Medicare for all and health care. The government takeover of the U.S. economy. I mean, this, these, Bernie is the real deal, and Elizabeth Warren is a real impersonator. She's had a lot of practice. And it's giving a never-Trumper like Brett Stevens pause. That's how wild-eyed are the proposals coming from your, two at least, of your Democrat Socialist frontrunners. This is the Dan Proctor. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prophet. I just want to continue this discussion we're having about uh, Brett Stevens' piece in the context of what Bolshevik Bernie and Chief Warren have proposed on tax and spend and government expansion policies. What's the backdrop of the proposal? Are Americans looking for this sort of, uh, well, Marxist revolution? Well, Gallup has some new polling out. On virtually every big indicator, Americans say things are better today than they were at the end of the Obama presidency. The economy is better, plus 22 points. The country is more secure, plus 18 points. The military is stronger, plus 15 points. Streets are safer, plus 9 points. I mean, those are material things. Your economic life and the feeling you have of of security, both domestically and, and with respect to the nation's security. In fact, average satisfaction across 27 issues that Gallup tested is higher than when Trump took office. I go again to say Trump is sort of the negative composite of Obama, uh, of Obama, you know, personally likable and popular policies, very unpopular. Trump personally not so likable. I mean, again, according to popular reaction to him, um, I'm sure that's not the case with his friends and associates, but personally unpopular, his personality, but his policies and their consequences 
actually quite popular, particularly uh, with respect to the previous occupant. Uh, Now, this is not to say there are not issues that the Republican Party and President Trump has to address. This is no walk in the park, and I don't want to make it sound like that. You you would think that there's no way that uh, a majority of the American public in the Electoral College context could embrace something like what Bernie or Warren are proposing. Uh, And that's why I think people like Roger Simon and Hugh Hewitt want Bernie Sanders to be the Democrat socialist nominee. So we have this bright line, clear, clearly framed choice between a market economy and a government directed life. I think that makes some sense. Um, But that doesn't mean it's a walk. And it doesn't mean that there's not a lot of it doesn't mean that there are areas there are not areas of dissatisfaction that still need to be addressed, including in those areas where people still think uh, things have improved. Yet there's a lot more improvement to go. It doesn't necessarily mean these are super majorities of Americans who are saying everything's hunky dory when it comes to the quality of my kids schools, the uh, state of immigration. Uh, the uh, quality of and affordability and portability of health insurance uh, as it pertains to the quality of my health care. So, I mean, there are still all of these areas, but it, it is noteworthy, not just these proposals, the tax rates, the government takeovers, the uh, public sector expansion being proposed, particularly by Bernie and Warren, but just generally everybody on their side is sort of running down the same road to serfdom. Um it's noteworthy what they're proposing in the abstract. It becomes unbelievably noteworthy. It becomes a head scratcher when you put it in the context of this Gallup polling of people's relative satisfaction with uh, how things have gone over the last three years and their relative confidence, optimism about where things are going. This is the data. From the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Dan Proft Show. Uh, The issue of should he... Or shouldn't he? Should John Bolton? Well, there's two should he or should he should he or should he not with respect to John Bolton. One is a decision for the Senate. Should he testify? Another is a decision for John Bolton. Should he say something publicly, issue some sort of public statement about whether or not he has information material to this proceeding now that he knows he has become even more of a political football than he was prior to the start of the impeachment trial. A couple of sh- and uh, I guess the third per his former chief of staff Fred Flights is should he or should he not withdraw this manuscript that he sent to the NSC for security review to uh, pursue the publication of his book in the spring. With respect to the decision for the Senate, I thought Alan Dershowitz handled it uh, relatively nicely during his time at the wheel yesterday talking about uh, this abuse of power charge and uh, giving a hypothetical before turning to the actual, uh, the actual being uh, the story that broke over the weekend about uh, Bolton's alleged assertions in his manuscript. Even if a president, any president, 
were to demand a quid pro quo as a condition to sending aid to a foreign country, obviously a highly disputed matter in this case, that would not by itself constitute an abuse of power. Consider the following hypothetical case that uh, is in our news today as the Israeli uh, Prime Minister comes to the United States for, for meetings. Let's assume a Democratic president tells Israel that foreign aid authorized by Congress will not be sent or an Oval Office meeting will not be scheduled unless the Israelis stop building settlements. Quid pro quo. I might disapprove of such a quid pro quo demand on policy grounds, but it would not constitute an abuse of power. Quid pro quo alone is not a basis for abuse of power. It's part of the way foreign policy has been operated by presidents since the beginning of time. It follows from this that if a president, any president, were to have done what the Times reported about the contact of the Bolton manuscript, that would not constitute an impeachable offense. Let me repeat, nothing in the Bolton revelations even if true, would rise to the level of an abuse of power or an impeachable offense. That is clear from the history. That is clear from the language of the Constitution. You cannot turn conduct that is not impeachable into impeachable conduct simply by using words like quid pro quo and personal benefit. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Fred Flight, who served as chief of staff to John Bolton in two stints during his career, including at the National Security Council in 2018. Uh, He is now the president and CEO uh, for the Center for Security Policy. Fred, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be here. Thank you. You know, you penned this piece in Fox uh, for Fox News that uh, calls on your old boss to withdraw his manuscript, pull that back. But sort of the bullets out of the gun, at least as far as the politics is concerned, even if he were to pull it back. What about what the Wall Street Journal argues, that he should make some sort of public statement on the matter to indicate whether or not he really has anything that is uh, material and non-redundant to the process? Well, I don't think that anything we've seen from the book so far. And of course, we don't know what's in the book. These were anonymous sources to the New York Times. So what we've heard might not be true, or might right. be exaggerated. From what I can tell, uh, these statements by Bolton in the book are nothing new, nothing that we don't already know. The more important principle, I think, is that uh, presidents have to be able to um, candidly and confidentially confide and consult their trusted advisors with the knowledge that those consultations will not be leaked to the media or be published in a book. And if, if that principle isn't upheld, presidents are going to be afraid to speak to the, to, the, to the most talented experts on very sensitive subjects, and that's dangerous for our country. So I think to defend that principle, uh, Ambassador Bolton should withdraw his book and not publish it before the, the election this November. And I wrote in the book that that's a principle that Bob Gates made. He resigned as Secretary of Defense in 2011, but he withheld his memoirs until 2014. They were very critical of the Obama administration because he did not want his book to have any effect on the 2012 presidential election. As somebody who knows him for 30 years like you do and uh, worked with uh, for him when he was uh, at NSC, when he was National Security Advisor, 
Uh, is there any indication you have that he believes uh, that there was uh, criminal wrongdoing or, uh, or, or wrongdoing that rose to the level of an impeachable offense? Or was it just a matter of, uh, you know, serious policy disagreements in various geopol- on various geopolitical matters? I haven't discussed the subject with him. Yeah, I mean, so with respect to the the giving your sense of Biden, I mean, we talked to Lieutenant Colonel Jim Carafano on the show yesterday, who also knows John and good, he, good friend of mine. Yeah, and he he had, you know, and we've had we had Ambassador Bolton on the show a million times before he became National Security Advisor. We always got on with him well. You know, I'm not as interventionist as he is, but we always had good discussions. He's obviously a, a very sharp mind and very straightforward, so he was a great guest, as Amy said. Um, but but Carafano said, and that's my sense of it, too. Look, if uh, John Bolton's a patriot, if he thought that there was something that needed to be said, he wouldn't wait for uh, the machinations of the House. He wouldn't wait for the decision in the Senate. He would come forward if he thought that he had information of, of criminal conduct at the, ho- upper, the highest reaches of government. Is that your sense of John Bolton, too? Yes, I think that's right. If he if he thought there was something urgent, I don't think he'd be silent. Um, and so with respect to this book, then, how do you and with respect to what you said about why the timing of this book is wrong, how do you um, reconcile or assess the decision that was made to send this over to NSC at the end of last month? I believe he still thinks he needs to get this message out soon. I I don't think that it was so urgent that he had to go to Congress to uh, discuss what he had in mind. Uh, I'm concerned that it was said to the National Security Council in the middle of the impeachment hearing, given how leak-prone the NSC is, and reports that came out yesterday that multiple paper copies were made in the NSC, which probably led to this manuscript being leaked. If I had advised Ambassador Bolton on this, I would have told him, if you're going to do it, don't do it during the impeachment process, because... Uh, the politics in Washington are just red hot. There's going to be some bureaucrat who will not be able to resist the temptation to leak this. I think that's probably what happened. With respect to uh, your time in the Trump administration, uh, what was your experience uh, when it came to these important discussions about policy uh, uh, with respect to Russia or Turkey and Syria, the, the full gamut? I enjoyed being in the Trump administration very much, and I hated leaving the NSC. I just uh, got, I, I, I mean, I got a better offer, but I t- spoke to Chief of Staff Kelly and Ambassador Bolton. They thought it was better for the president that I moved on to a position where I could continue my writing and media work. But I was involved in all kinds of national security questions in Iran and North Korea and Syria. And we were doing a lot of good. We did a lot of good on the counterterrorism strategy, getting the U.S. out of the nuclear deal with Iran. I think we achieved a lot in North Korea. I, I know that we haven't gotten as far as the president had hoped. I think the situation is considerably better than under the Obama administration. I see a lot of potential for continuing to promote our national security in a second Trump term. And and did you see anything uh, or experience anything during your time that was troubling to you that wasn't, uh, you know, forgetting sort of the rhetorical style that wasn't sort of customary uh, foreign policy, national security decision making as it pertains to American interests? I think there's no question that Trump's approach to national security is unorthodox. He does things completely different from other presidents. He's thrown out the national security rulebook. He doesn't uh, go by traditional diplomatic conventions. Um, I think a lot of that has been a breath of fresh air. It's led to some awkward moments at times, but the American people 
voted it in because they were tired of the foreign policy establishment. And I think on balance, it's been a good move. And nothing that you would say, this is somebody who is putting his interests ahead of America's interests. No, I've never seen that. And I, I think I, if people are going to make that allegation, I'd like to see solid evidence. Uh, that seems fair. Uh, we're still waiting for solid evidence of that. And we're uh, nearing uh, the end of uh, opening arguments in the uh, in the, which could end up being closing arguments, uh, we'll see, with respect to the impeachment trial. He is Fred Flights. He's president CEO, uh, Center for Security Policy, former chief of staff to Ambassador John Bolton. Fred, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Good beer. Thank you. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show i wanted to switch gears from all of the uh, impeachment cloak and dagger and intrigue talk about something else that has a similar component to it though as a so-called Trump derangement syndrome, you know, people's ability to be completely unbounded by their own hypocrisy when it comes to something they don't like or someone they don't like. Uh, this is retail, retail food. And this is uh, Walmart all over again. Uh, Sam Walton creates Walmart to make the everyday essentials of life more affordable to people on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. And then he builds an empire because of that insight because of serving those customers, businesses as a service, as service organizations. You don't serve a discernible customer base. You don't keep your doors open. The difference between the public and the private sector. So the new whipping boy for the current generation, like Walmart was for much of the last 40 years, is are these dollar stores. Dollar General, fastest growing retail in the U.S. and its competitors, Dollar Tree and Family Dollar, which is owned by Dollar Tree. Uh, they are uh, doing very well, expanding into some of the country's most poor communities, small rural towns, urban, predominantly black neighborhoods. But the local lords don't like them. Really interesting. You know, this penchant people have to determine the lives of others uh, and also sort of the, the way in which others may intersect their lives. They don't like them. Uh, the so and you know you you're in a position where you're trying to sort of bootstrap an argument that the facts don't support when you're at the same time arguing what Dollar Tree these dollar stores Dollar General and Dollar Tree they they they're predatory in their pricing driving out other businesses you know the mom and pa store argument that you heard forever about Walmart they're predatory pricers but they're also price gougers the portions are too small uh, but uh, they're um, what? What's the argument that's made? Oh, the uh, the food. Yeah, the food is terrible food, processed food, and the portions are too small. <laughs> so your price, your price predator, and your price gouging. You're undercutting your competition by lowering your price, but you're also gouging your customers who come there voluntarily. Bo, by the way. And then the food is terrible, but the portions are too small. 
just some of the contradictory arguments that are being made as there are efforts around the country, Tulsa, Oklahoma, Mesquite, Texas, DeKalb County, Georgia, uh, New Orleans, to limit the number of dollar stores that can serve the population because the government commissars know how many dollar stores a community should have the market and the market feedback through uh, the volunteerism of customers. That's not what should determine it. Hmm. In point of fact, it's interesting. Uh, some brand research on uh, Dollar Tree, Family Tree, Dollar General. 62% of the uh, adults surveyed by brand intelligence, by the brand intelligence for a morning consult, say Dollar Tree has a positive effect on my community. 62%. Compared to 51% for Starbucks and 59% for Target. It turns out that a lot of people that are just um, getting by for whatever reason. Uh, really appreciate the price points for the products they can get at these dollar stores. But as uh, Laura Williams writes over at fee.org, Foundation for Economic Education, uh, politicians and middle-income activists and other sort of champagne socialist types uh, want to take the Marie Antoinette position or the 21st century version of them, let them eat whole foods. Yeah. Um. This is one example of what I'm talking about, just to make it concrete. This is from FastCompany.com. Up until 2015, Haven, Kansas, town of just over 1,200 people, had one grocery store, the Food Liner. That changed when the Dollar General opened in Haven in February of 2015. Uh, almost immediately, they saw a drop in flow of customers. By last year, they rang up only 125 people. Sales had dropped by 40%, and then last August, the food liner permanently closed. Yeah. And uh, we're supposed to lament the food liner uh, and not celebrate the family dollar store. Or if the family dollar store had closed and the food liner wouldn't, we would have celebrated the food liner and not lamented the dollar store. Uh, Going back to what Laura Williams writes at Fee, I think she's got a pretty good beat on this. Uh. Uh, perhaps only if the signage were subtle and they weren't close enough that people could walk to them, we wouldn't want to look like the kind of neighborhood that needs those. It's not, you know, this is sort of the, the arguments that are being made. They're aesthetic arguments and they're sort of arguments about not wanting to, again, appear that you have people that are just getting by in your community or you're the part of a community that's just getting by. Uh, she writes, it's not wrong to care about community character or beautiful streets, but it's an injustice to care about them so much that you use government power to block other people's access to affordable bread, pencils, toilet paper. And it adds condescending insults to, to injury to claim to be doing so for their own good. That, yeah, that paternalistic instinct. I'm here to help you and I'm going to uh, sort of take over the decision making for you. Uh, this is uh, the ripping off the poor argument. Right. Oh, hey, 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 they're ripping you off. A bag of flour at a dollar store just out of San Francisco costs only a dollar, but they also only weigh two pounds. Most bags in the supermarket are five pounds. It can be uh, can be purchased for less than two hundred of two dollars and fifty cents at uh, retailers like Walmart or Costco, though they point out. Parenthetically, and this is more than a parenthetical comment, though, going to those big box stores requires time and often a car to access. Yeah. Well, this is the difference. Dollar store and uh, 
Dollar General, these dollar stores, forget the brand names, I'm talking about dollar stores generally, you know, they locate where uh, it's convenient for people who don't have that kind of transportation and are may, may be on foot or on bicycle. And so uh, it's, yeah, if you don't necessarily have economies of scale in terms of your purchasing power, but there are other dynamics that these dollar stores are contemplating that the big boxes aren't because they're serving different customer bases, right? And they, even that story that takes to task the dollar stores points out that some it, items are more economical at dollar stores like toys and greeting cards and hangers, um, even where uh, you can't get the sort of purchasing power you can if you can afford to buy in bulk. The other point is, look, Someone with cash on hand to buy in bulk would do better to do so, but dollar stores are still cheaper for locals than liquor shops and convenience stores they compete with. You know, right, are you competing on price or quality or some combination of the two, but who's your actual, who are your actual market competitors? Walmart and Costco are not market competitors to the dollar stores, and neither is Whole Foods. But they're the least bad option among their competitors of liquor shops and convenience stores. Um, one economist, we have so many people are pretty close to the line and trying to get by until incomes are raised for the bottom third of the population. Dollar stores will be part of the landscape. Yeah. And you know what? Until, uh, those, some of those individuals that are accessing those dollar stores now can afford better options. That's a great option for them to get by until things get better. And it's wrong to be so dismissive of the interests of, uh, other people in your community to be so cavalier about other people's lives as those who would uh, sort of um, arbitrarily redline dollar stores in their community for their own sense of aesthetic taste. This is the damn Fox Show. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, what's the potential for a D.C. network blackout of President Trump as the campaign heats up? I ask because... As Paul Sperry tweeted out yesterday, noting uh, Paul Sperry, the Real Clear Investigations uh, investigative reporter, who broke the story on the so-called whistleblower, all three uh, networks, ABC, CBS, and NBC, blacked out Trump defense lawyer Pam Bondi's presentation in the afternoon of Ukraine corruption related to Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, and Burisma. In contrast, the big three carried Schiff's PM presentations live, preempting regular programming. Uh, in this other note, NBC Universal will stop airing a Trump re-election campaign ad on all of its cable network. The ad claims that presidential hopeful Joe Biden promised Ukraine a billion dollars to fire a prosecutor looking into a Ukraine gas company with ties to his son, Hunter Biden. That is, in fact, true. But nonetheless, NBC Universal is going to stop running the Trump ad on their cable network. For more on this topic of media, at least that's where we'll start, we're pleased to be joined by Roger Simon. He's a novelist. He's an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, co-founder of PJ Media, now a senior political analyst at the Epoch Times. Roger, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be here. Well, uh, this dovetails with a piece that you wrote uh, about um, Facebook uh, coming out of the Davos conference last week, 
uh, with uh, no less than George Soros criticizing Facebook for allegedly helping President Trump not just win 2016, but win re-election. Um, how do you size up the media landscape for the 2020 campaign and, and perhaps start with the blackouts uh, of President Trump and his allies over the last couple of days? Well, you know, <laughs> the blackouts are, you know, I just got back from uh, Taiwan where I was uh, super, uh, there to observe the election and I met the um, democracy demonstrators from Hong Kong and so forth. And, you know, it started to remind me of the same thing. The democracy demonstrators are the bravest people I ever met. And I started to realize that we're headed in the direction of China. I mean, this is ridiculous. Media blackouts are insane. Well, I mean, is it a a real concern, though, with respect to the networks, or is the money going to be too great for them to turn away? Well, yeah, the money will be very great, and probably they will have to yield a bit. But nevertheless, the instinct that they have to control the news in that manner is pretty frightening and, and, you know, worthy of Xi Jinping, frankly. And, uh, (laughs) well... Right. I mean, you know, we I mean, of course, we've had Google, uh, American company that worked with the Chinese government previously and uh, Twitter as well and apologized for helping China uh, essentially control the flow of information to its citizens. But, you know, it's a it's sort of it continues to be a who watches the watchman question, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And, um, you know, these companies are sort of they're multinationals, of course, they're American companies that. And some of the profits go to this country, but in reality, they cross border, and they 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 have now superseded um, national interests. So their interests are only their own, and what they consider to be politically correct. I mean, Google, I think, is is the worst because Google searches when you do them order the news according to the lords of Google. But, you know, that's why Soros, I think, got so upset with Facebook. They were doing that less. Well, right. I mean, yeah, the Soros thing strikes me as uh, trying to just send a shot across Facebook's bow, right? Exactly. And uh, but I think, you know, Soros was telling Facebook, hey, the rules of the game here are you multinational big tech companies. You have to observe the leftist ethic and the tone uh big shots like Soros are not going to give you our money. <laughs> I mean, that's really, or not not give you the money, are going to use our money to hurt you. Right. And well, although it's it's tough, I mean, even as rich as Soros is, it's tough to uh, try to Bigfoot Facebook when it, with, uh, with money, isn't it? It's tough. Yeah, I agree. But on the other hand, it's not impossible. <laughs> Uh, I mean, Soros has a lot, and he's willing to use it. I mean, he's—I think one of the most despicable, uh, creepy things he did was fund all these social justice warriors to become district attorneys. Absolutely, all America. absolutely. Uh, we have one in uh, my hometown of Chicago in Cook County, and it's uh, not been pleasant, as uh, anybody who's followed the Jesse Smollett case would understand. Uh, Roger, when we come back, I want to uh, pick your brain on the Iowa caucus, which is Monday. And uh, the outcome of which, how that, how the outcome of, of that may portend for the future nominee of the Democrat Socialist Party. We'll be right back with more. Roger Simon, co-founder of PJ Media, right after this. Jump around. Jump around. 
political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're talking to Roger Simon, who's a uh, novelist, Oscar-nominated screenwriter, co-founder of PJ Media, and now a political analyst for the Epoch Times. And here's a couple of ads that did get aired, uh, unlike the Trump ad. These are going to continue to air in Iowa before Monday's caucus. Uh, the closing arguments from Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. First, the frontrunner, Bolshevik Bernie, and his Medicare for All close. For a hundred years, presidents have talked about the need to guarantee health care for all. I've repeatedly asked the Congress to pass a health program. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. Health care is not just a privilege, but a right for every single American. Now is the time to take on the greed of the health care industry and finally pass Medicare for all. I'm Bernie Sanders, and I approve this message. By contrast, Elizabeth Warren chose to do a contrast between herself and President Trump as her closing argument. He grew up in a mansion in New York City. She grew up here in Oklahoma. He got millions from his dad's real estate empire. Her dad ended up a janitor. He scammed students at his for-profit school. She got debts forgiven for students who were scammed. When someone shows you who they are, believe them. Trump's life taught him how to get rich on the backs of others. Elizabeth Warren will be a president who works for you. I'm Elizabeth Warren, and I approve this message. So, uh, Roger, what do you think? Uh, Elizabeth Warren got the Des Moines Register endorsement, but has been flailing over the last 30 days where where Bolshevik Bernie is surging. How do you uh, handicap Iowa? Oh, I, I, I think it's Bernie. And I think this is a good thing. I, I am very much looking forward, and I'm about to write a column for the Epoch Times about it this morning, uh, tomorrow morning. Then that is that uh, a Bernie-Trump election it would be great for America. And why is that? It would be, be a real election for a change. No uniparty nonsense. This is it. Capitalism versus socialism. And it'll be very educational for the young people who have been educated as socialists by our our school system, which is increasingly left wing. What? And it's going to be up to Trump to be really clear and good in this. Just calling Bernie crazy Bernie is not enough. No, and it, yeah. Well, it'll it'll also require a bit of an education that's not happening in the K through twelve school system. I mean, uh, specifically on Bernie, but a little bit of uh, recent American history. So when uh, uh, America stood against, I don't know, the Castro regime, Bernie was with Castro. When America stood against uh, Daniel Ortega, Nicaragua, Bernie was with Ortega. When America stood against the Soviet Empire, Bernie was with the Empire. I mean, those sort of, those, those sort of little uh, moments in time over the last 50 years like that. Very much so. I mean, I was in the Soviet Union on cultural exchanges exactly at the same time as Bernie was there celebrating his marriage. And I will tell you something. I don't know what was going on in his brain because the Soviet Union looked to me in those days like one giant jail. And there's something very disturbing in all this. It's not just K-12 museums. Colleges and universities are even worse. So... uh, you know, this is, this is a big moment. And uh, by the way, I think Warren, had the, I, I think she's dead for a simple reason. All the people who are, the one thing you can say in favor of Bernie, he really believes what he's saying. I'm not sure any of the others believe anything they're saying. They're just saying it 
for political purposes. Whereas Bernie, the dog is too. He's a real, he's a real leftist. Well, and yeah, and, and that that seems to be. I mean, that's sort of the Joe Rogan argument for Bernie uh, that uh, he posted uh, earlier in the week or over the weekend, and. And uh, right. If, if we're going to we want the real thing. And of course, he has infrastructure that he brings to the table this election cycle that few candidates had because they didn't run a competitive race in 2016 for president. And it seems like that allowed him to survive his health scare and his drop in the polls and 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 uh, and, and stage a, a bit of a resurgence that's happening now. But my question is, if it, if it starts to become clear that it's Bernie versus Biden, perhaps. Uh, I mean, you think that he still can survive uh, Clinton world and Obama world coming together to stop him? Yes. And uh, I'll tell you the reason I think he can. And that is that the first time in the last election cycle, um, his his uh, followers felt like they were screwed and deprived. And they were. They're not going to let that happen again. And if it happens again, they'll get huge split the Democratic Party. They're, and the Democrats know that. I mean, the Bernie pros won't show up for the election this time. I mean, it's over. They're real serious. So I think I think he's got a strong chance. What will happen? I also think, looking into the future, that Trump will defeat him, and the Democratic Party may split the two parties. Really, you think? We're in a we're in a very interesting time. It's not normal. Uh, yes, so, uh, <laughs> I think you'll get I think you get bipartisan agreement on that. And and what of what of Joe Biden? What happens to Joe Biden? Whether or not uh, he or Hunter ever have to testify in this impeachment proceeding, uh, Joe just can't make it, even with uh, even with sort of the non-Bernie support uh, potentially rallying around him. Well, here here's something I'd like to offer to your listeners to think about. I think that Joe Biden is one of the worst fathers that's ever appeared in public life. He, uh, you know, things like Hunter Biden don't happen by accident. He had a bad father. Think about it. When uh, when you have a, you have a cocaine pipe falling out of your car, and your father says, "Oh, it's okay. Go be a millionaire." Um, member of a board of directors in the Ukraine when you can't speak the language and don't know anything about the business. Uh, the father has not done the right thing. The father should step in and say, go to rehab, kid. Well, and, and, and what about... Uh, uh, being a parent is the most important job you have, more so than being president. Hmm. And Joe Biden failed big time. Well, and, and the other thing that Joe Biden has to, to tend with, uh, contend with is what Hillary Clinton had to contend with, a Peter Schweitzer book that didn't start out perhaps uh, something to be too worried about, but certainly turned into something to be worried about by the time November of 2016 rolled around for Hillary. And it's already something to wor- be worried about for, for uh, Joe because people are just sort of tuning into all this Hunter Biden stuff. And we got four other family members that are profiled in Peter Schweitzer's book with all kinds of other self-dealing or leveraging of yep. Joe's office for personal enrichment. Yeah, it's all over. I, I don't think Biden. I mean, the, the Democrats are crazy if they make a, make a deal with, uh, with the Trump people that that uh, Bolton can testify, but Biden has to testify. Because the minute one of the Biden starts to testify, they're in trouble. He is Roger Simon. He's a novelist, Oscar-nominated screenwriter, co-founder of PJ Media, and now senior analyst for the Epoch Times. Roger, thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Appreciate it. Always fun. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. 
you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. You want to find a uh, disturbing little dimension in our on our mortal coil? You don't need to read uh, Stephen King novels. Read the uh, relationship column in uh, Slate Magazine, Slate.com, by Rich Juzwiak. I listen to this letter. This is a letter and a headline for our time. Truly, I'm a heterosexual woman who's politically opposed to heterosexuality. Who do I date? I'm a heterosexual woman who's politically opposed to heterosexuality. Who do I date? She writes, I'm a cis woman in a kind of classic millennial sex pickle. I'm really repelled by heterosexuality politically and personally, but I'm also really into, well, men, I'll say. That's not what she said. Use your imagination. I've been thinking maybe I should look for bi dudes, bi curious gay dudes, but I'm not sure how to best do that. Rich. What would you think of a woman being on Grindr or Scruff? I assume these are gay dating apps. I do want to be respectful of gay men's spaces and not horn in where I'm not welcome, but I really would love to find a Vers guy with queer politics who would be up for casually dating a woman. What do you think? If you were me, where would you look? Uh, my response would be to the Lord, but I don't think that's where she's willing to look, and uh, she self-describes as radical. The old classic millennial sex pickle. I'm heterosexual, but I am opposed to heterosexuality, politically and personally, but not physically. Uh, And uh, he goes on to give some unbelievably long, can't believe how long the response is to this this, uh, question, but he basically just says, you know, respect people's spaces without getting into all of the... uh, advice and review of the landscape, half of which I don't understand. But he he also said, I feel like you're going to end up with some uh, puppy dog of a straight guy who's read some theory here and there anyway. I mean, by all means, have fun until you find him. But I put money in that being where this is going. Sure, you're going to marry, you know, the effeminate heterosexual, you know, heterosexual in quotation marks. How many of those do you find out in the in the wild who are married to women running around in pee hats to protest Trump for the last four years? Oh, boy. Uh, here's another one, just in terms of the head shaker. The, a transgender MMA fighter, his name is Fallon Fox, he fights as a woman, uh, just been uh, tabbed the bravest athlete in history, according to OutSports, a sports news website that focuses on LGBT issues in sports. This is a, a guy who has cracked the skulls of two women he's fought in MMA fights. The ultimate fighting you know, uh, sport. Uh, one of the women who uh, suffered a concussion and the breaking of seven orbital bones said, I, I fought a lot of women. I've never felt the strength like I felt uh, in a fight as I did that night. I can't answer whether it's because she was born a man or not because I'm not a doctor. I can only say I've never felt so overpowered in my life. And I'm abnormally strong female in my own right. I disagree with Fox fighting any other job or career. I'd, I'd, ha, I'd say have a go at it. But when it comes to a combat sport, I think it just isn't fair. It's worth not fair, isn't it? It's freaking dangerous. And I guess uh, we won't stop cheering until somebody's killed in the ring. And probably not even then. It's a damn problem. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. 
The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to The Dan Proft Show. Yesterday, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, granted the Trump administration's emergency request to start enforcing some of the immigration rules changes it has advanced. Emergency request necessitated by a injunction by a federal appellate court. Uh, this is the uh, specific guideline in question, was to expand the pool of people considered likely to become a public charge under U.S. immigration law. If an immigrant makes use of a public assistance program, such as housing assistance, food stamps, or Medicaid, or an immigration officer estimates he or she might in the future, <clears throat> the person could be denied a green card or barred from the U.S. altogether. This would stay at the appellate court level. And uh, the Supreme Court removed that stay and allows the administration to move forward with that policy change. Something important, though, in addition to the removal of that stay in all but every state but Illinois. does not apply in Illinois because Illinois, it was enjoined in a different case in Illinois. But uh, Gorsuch decided to uh, issue a uh, concurring opinion, sending a message to lower court judges around the country, because what you've had is more stays— uh, more injunctions issued against this administration than any presidential administration in history. Gorsuch writing, today the court rightly grants a stay, allowing the government to pursue for now its policy everywhere save Illinois. But in light of all that's come before, it would be delusional to think that one stay suffices to remedy the problem. The real problem here is the increasingly common practice of trial courts ordering relief that transcends the cases before them. Whether framed as injunctions of nationwide, universal, or cosmic scope, these orders share the same basic flaw. They direct how the defendant must act toward persons who are not parties to the case. Uh, and uh, this so th- this was not a statement by even the majority in the case necessarily of support for the particular policy. It was a statement as to the proper power and exercise of it, where it is and is not being exercised properly. Yes, at the Supreme Court level, but in part only because their hand is forced by overreaches at the lower court level. It's just an important holding, and it speaks to the jurisprudence of a true originalist like Gorsuch. And uh, I would also suggest uh, probably a couple others, but most notably, of course, Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas is the subject of a new documentary that that I want to get to in just a moment. But just to set that up, talking about Clarence Thomas and uh, his tenure on the court, Uh, his import in uh, the history of American jurisprudence now. There's a great interview that he did with his wife a couple of years ago, and we played it on the show. Forgetting his uh, political and judicial philosophy for a a minute, the miracle of Clarence Thomas's life. You know, it's always interesting to me when people say, well, I don't believe in miracle. Well, I have no other explanations. Uh, It doesn't add up. Uh, You can say it's luck. You can say it's good fortune. You know, I prefer to just say, well, it's just divine providence because there is just no explanation that one, that a house burns down, that winds results in my brother and me going to live with my mother in this tenement. Well, then she can't really handle two little boys and working for 10 to $15 a week. She takes us to our grandparents. And then so you wind up being raised by two of the greatest people you would ever know. Tell me that's not miraculous. They then take you to a Catholic school where you have nuns who devote their lives to little black kids in the inner city of Savannah. So then that 
is another miracle. You then wind up going into the seminary, and that's another totally different experience. Now, how do you explain all of that? I mean, how does it all sort of make sense if you look at it as you go through it? In retrospect, it makes sense. But to me, looking at it retrospectively also suggests to me that it is certainly providential that this happened. And if you haven't read his autobiography, I would encourage you to pick it up and re- check it out. My Godfather's Son is the title of Clarence Thomas's autobiography. The title of the new documentary about Clarence Thomas is Created Equal, Clarence Thomas in His Own Words. Michael Pack is, the Ameri- uh, is a publisher, documentary film producer, and nonprofit executive who directed this new documentary, Created Equal, and he joins us now. Michael, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Uh, so what was the... Um, the inspiration for you to uh, pursue this documentary on Thomas? We had heard from mutual friends that, that Justice Thomas was getting tired of having his story told by people who didn't agree with him or even people who hated him, and he was getting tired of the lies and half-truths. And so we met with him, and it didn't take long. I, I had not read the, his memoir that you just referred to, or, or knew, I didn't know that much about him except the confirmation battle. But once you know his story, as you just said, and as that clip even indicates, it's such a great story. I really felt it needed to be told. And as the clip you showed also illustrates, he's a great storyteller himself. Lots of people don't know that. They think of him as quiet and taciturn, which is so far from the truth. So we came up with the idea. Originally, it was going to be a documentary interviewing you know, 10 or 15 people across the political spectrum, different stages of his life. But Turns out he's the best teller of his own tale. So we were lucky in that we were able to conduct over 30 hours of interviews with Justice Thomas and his wife, Ginny, and only them. And and Justice Thomas looks right at the camera and tells the story directly to the audience in his own words from the very beginning, from his birth uh, all the way, as he describes in that clip too, from his birth in in poverty in the segregated South all the way up to the Supreme Court, a great and classic American story. In your interviews with uh, Justice Thomas, did you ask him about the Senate confirmation hearing? We did. We asked him a lot about that. I mean, there was nothing off the table except that Justice Thomas, like almost every justice, refuses to comment on either cases that might be coming before the court or current political events. But nothing in his own life was off the table, and he talked at length about it. Our film gives you his experience of these things. So he talks about what it was like to go through that hearing, as does his wife, Ginny. He mentions in the, the clip you showed this, this, the people don't remember how long the hearing was, but there was the first part of the hearing, and then Anita Hill's testimony was leaked, and then there's a second part of the hearing, and they had felt really nothing left by the time the Anita Hill allegations came out. And they felt that second part was like spiritual warfare. And they relied deeply on their faith to get them through. And both Justice Thomas and Ginny talk about what that was like. I mean, it's a very powerful, moving thing, you know, for everyone, whether you agree with him or not. I I agree with what you said earlier, that it's a great story. The the other thing about Thomas, because he is... um not uh, one to speak a lot in public, particularly uh, during court proceedings. So people don't have a good handle on him. And he's been sort of caricatured as uh, as brooding, and he's still uh, Mm. angry about uh, what happened during the confirmation hearing. And if you go back to that uh, Ginny Thomas interview of 
her husband from a couple of years ago that I referenced. Nothing, nothing could be further from the truth on that, that caricature of the type of person he is personality-wise, too. Whatever hurt and animosity he felt has long since dissipated, and that he's actually quite a very fun-loving and jovial guy who doesn't uh, spend a whole lot of time living his lives in the minds of others. Well, that, that is very true. I mean, I think one of the most inspiring things about his story is his resilience in the face of deep opposition and his unwillingness to define himself as a victim. If he grew up in the segregated South, he experienced dire poverty in Savannah, but he chooses to think of his life as blessed. We can all look at things that way. I think it's very inspiring. And one of the reasons we made the film was to shatter these myths, like the one you just said about Justice Thomas. And the truth is very different. And his story goes on past the little bit that he told. I mean, there's his rejection of the church at his grandfather kicking him out and his going through a period where he was a black radical at Holy Cross supporting the Panthers and Angela Davis and, you know, Malcolm X. And, and then finally coming back to his faith and back to the values of his grandfather and the nuns and, and then becoming politically conservative through experiencing the failures of the left. A powerful story. A lot of it has to do with choices and that Justice Thomas made and his ability to think his way back from the left back to his core values. Yeah. It's an amazing story. A spiritual and intellectual journey, no question. A um, spiritual and intellectual, yes. And, very true. And and the relationship between um, between Clarence and Ginny as well, um, I, I, there's you know long been rumors about uh, him wanting to retire because he what he really likes to do is fire up the RV and the two of them right. go blue highways around the country. Well, that's right. Justice Thomas said to us that the Supreme Court is a job for life, and that's the way he thinks about it. So I hope that that's true. Even the standards of the presidential race, he's not old. <laughs> he's, I think, 71, 72. He could be there, you know, another 15 years. And I hope he does stay. Michael, tell us where people can access this documentary. Give us all the particulars. It's going to be in movie theaters starting this Friday. You can find out exactly where by going to our website, justicethomasmovie.com, and watch our trailer. And if it's not in the part of the world that you're in, there's a way to sign up to get, if there are 30 of you, we can do a showing where you are. Bring your family, especially young people, and bring people who do not necessarily agree with you. I think it's a good basis for a discussion. All right, very good. He is Michael Pack. He is a publisher, documentary film producer, nonprofit executive, and he directs this new documentary on Clarence Thomas. Created equal, Clarence Thomas in his own words, justicethomasmovie.com. Michael Pack, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck with the film. Thank you. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We like to check in with our friends at uh, Truth and Accounting, uh, where I'm a board member, by the way, in the interest of full disclosure. Uh, I like to check in because uh, Truth and Accounting does great analytical work at the local level, too. We talk so much about the federal government, some about the state government, not nearly enough about local government. People don't pay nearly enough attention to their local government. You see it in just even their participation in local elections. But that's where a lot of the action is. And certainly a lot of where your bills come from, where a lot of your quality of life depends. So a Truth in Accounting's 2020 report, they look at uh, 75 cities around the country and uh, do a little bit of analyzing and grouping for us so we can figure out which local units of government are doing it right and which local units of government, you know, like Chicago, 
are doing it wrong. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by Sheila Weinberg, who is the founder and CEO of Truth in Accounting. Sheila, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. So um, the interesting thing about the 75 cities you looked at, just taking them in aggregate uh, for a moment, is that uh, fully three-quarters of them, you report, do not have enough money to pay their bills. Yeah, and that's despite the uh, balanced budget requirements. We found all the cities, including balanced Chicago, budget. have a balanced budget Hilarious. Uh, requirement. But but that all depends on how you count. Right. <laughs> Evidently, and these cities are not good at counting. So what, so one of the things that um, they don't like to count are things like pension obligations? Yeah, you know what? Employees earn the pension obligations, um, but it's kind of like your credit card. You know, you go ahead and you charge your groceries and then... You know, you you can pay that bill off as you go along, or you can defer it into the future. You can, you know, you can do monthly payments. Well, the city of Chicago, instead of including the compensation costs as they're incurring them, they defer those payments into the future. Um, so therefore, their budgets really aren't balanced. Um, and, you know, we think the first step the mayor could do is let's just go ahead and be honest with the public because you're telling them that the budget's balanced. Therefore, people are assuming that you're not going into debt, um, but the city is $34 billion in the hole, um, even though these budgets have theoretically been balanced. One of the top five cities doing it right, operating uh, uh, surpluses, Washington, D.C.? What happened there? Yeah, yeah, no, it was shocking to me also. Um, I think that they get federal funds to pay their, their benefits, and, and they're, they're so... Um, they're, you know, they get money, so much money from the feds that they're, you know, able to, uh, well, but to still, pay their bills. But still, I mean, you know, m- normally uh, you get so much money from another unit of government, you spend through that just like you do taxpayer money. I mean, it doesn't really, or, or, or direct taxpayer money, really doesn't matter to reckless governments. I mean, take Illinois and Chicago, for example. They, we get money from the feds, uh, too, but that doesn't seem to uh, put any sort of governor on our spending. Um, so it's just what well, that's that's uh, uh, I guess that's interesting to know. Maybe uh, so the Washington, D.C., the local government could teach a lesson to the federal government that supports it. That's so interesting. Um, and sh- yeah, it's very peculiar because their their pension plans are theoretically overfunded, um, which they you know, the value of their assets are actually, you know, uh, more than their projected uh, benefits. Uh, but, you know, that all could change with the market. Uh, yeah, speaking of things that could change in the market, so Illinois, uh, pulling out from Chicago and just talking about Illinois generally, so we're looking at uh, 129,000 Illinois public pensioners will see expected payouts of more than a million dollars during their retirement. And, of course, it's not just the payouts that's a problem. It's how little they paid in. So it, the, it, it, you, just, you just can't make it work when, you know, you're paying in, no, I don't know, hundred and forty grand and you're getting two million dollars back which is not which is sort of standard issue for um, say uh, well at the city level say for fire and police and CPS teachers so um, w- with respect to to that it, it always strikes me with these uh, with these reports does anybody ever go in and, and say, and maybe the good examples could speak to this, say, you know, um, we'd love to write everybody a blank check and, and uh, love to confer multi-million dollar pensions with very little pay-ins. But, but here's, you know, what we anticipate in terms of revenue. And so these are, this is where our personal costs are going to have to tap out, including the benefits associated with your employment. 
and we're going to have to right-size things that we can no longer finance. Are, are those conversations going on anywhere in the country? We know they're not happening in Illinois, but maybe in some of these other cities that are uh, doing it right? Yeah, no, um, they, you know that, that is going on. Um, actually, there's an example in Chicago, I hate to say, um, where Rahm Emanuel uh, did look at the retiree health care benefits and said, you know, we just can't afford those and just slowly started phasing those out. Um, and so the city has... Uh, a very um, quote little um, retiree health care benefits compared to their pension benefits. Um, and New York City actually has, you know, a, more than a hundred billion dollars of retiree health care benefits that, that they've promised and not funded, where the city of Chicago only has six hundred and eighty-four uh, million. Uh, million dollars. Um, so, you know, that is one area that we could be even in worse shape than we are now um, because so and other cities are are ta- contemplating funding, uh, you know, getting rid of those uh, or at least reducing those retiree health care benefits. Um, in Illinois, they attempted to do that when they did pension reform. Um, they said, hold it, you know, OK, well, you know, they went ahead and said, well, well you can keep your pensions, but we're going to get rid of your retiree health care benefits. But unfortunately, the Illinois Supreme Court said, no, those retiree health care benefits are just as guaranteed as the um, employee, as the uh, pension benefits. So, you know, we, we're not able to get rid of uh, those as uh, as much as we'd like to. And just, um, uh, just, to, just to make a little bit of a private sector comparison, as you look at these books uh, for these local units of government, I mean, in uh, is, is there um, is there any case in these cities that have spent beyond their means? which is, as I said, three-quarters of them, where if they were the fiduciaries of a privately held company, there wouldn't be people going to jail? No, especially Illinois. They only have a, I mean, Chicago, they only have a funding ratio of 23, 23%, i.e., uh, they've promised, every dollar they've promised, they've only put 23 cents away. Um, the IRS, that if you, you know, in a corporation, if your funding ratio goes below 80%, they consider your plan endangered. If it goes below 65%, you have to enact a plan that contributes more or pays less benefits out. Um, but you know that that's not possible in Illinois. You know the the you know we could go on and on about the progressive income tax. They're opening up the Constitution to fix that. Um, let's go ahead and open up the Constitution to fix some of the structural problems that have gotten us into this mess, like the pensions, like the retiree health care. Oh. And like the uh, balanced budget calculation that, you know, has put the state $225 billion in the hole while they were balancing the budget, um, maybe the wording of that of the Constitution needs to be changed. Um, So if you're going to open up the Constitution, let's let's fix some of the structural problems that got us into the mess. She is Sheila Weinberg. She's the founder and CEO of Truth and Accounting. Their financial state of the city's 2020 report is out. And I will tweet it out at Dan Prof. You can pick it up there. Of course, uh, Truth and Accounting's website as well, truthandaccounting.org. Sheila, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Sorry for the bad news. Yeah, well, we expected it. People say I'm lazy. Dreaming my life away. Well, they give me all kinds of advice. Designed to enlighten me. Tell them that I'm doing fine Watching shadows on the wall You're listening to The Dan Proft Show On the Salem Radio Network
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So as we uh, discussed earlier in the show, uh, Alan Dershowitz uh, on uh, Monday evening took his time to focus on sort of the founder's context to the language in the Constitution about high crimes and misdemeanor to assess whether the charges that have been leveled in these articles of impeachment against the president meet the standard that was set forward by the founders in drafting the Constitution. And uh, here's what Dershowitz had to say in pertinent part as to whether or not these two articles, the abuse of power and the obstruction of Congress, meet that standard. Do abuse of power and obstruction of Congress constitute impeachable offenses? The relevant history answers that question clearly in the negative. Each of these charges suffers from the vice of being, quote, so vague a term that they will be equivalent of tenure at the pleasure of the Senate, to quote again, the father of our Constitution. Abuse of power is an accusation easily leveled by political opponents against controversial presidents. In our long history, many presidents have been accused of abusing their power. And he went on to give numerous examples of uh, allegations of abuse of power, suggesting that uh, that's political language that should be adjudicated by the electorate in an election. It is not the language of an impeachable offense that should be adjudicated by the Senate in an impeachment trial. For more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by John Yu. He is the uh, Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And he has written on this topic as well about what the founders intended by the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors. Professor, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. So uh, what was your assessment of uh, Professor Dershowitz's interpretation of the relevant provisions? I think Dershowitz did a good job making his case, and he, he made a really excellent presentation suited to that audience, quite different than the way he appears on uh, television and so on. But I don't think he's right on the substance. May, we may end up at the same place in the end, but if you look at the material, and I have looked at the historical material quite a bit, uh, it doesn't support the idea that treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors is only limited to times when the president commits an actual crime. Instead, I think the founders had in mind the idea that a president who did serious harm to the country, uh, like treason or bribery, could be impeached, even though it wasn't a crime. Now, Allen's definitely right that a vague, amorphous abuse of power standard is so loose that it would allow Cong- could allow Congress to exercise too much power over the executive, essentially subject the president to their political control just out of policy disputes. But that doesn't disprove that the founders meant something more than crimes was an impeachable offense either. When he was on CNN uh, on this topic uh, prior to his uh, offering uh, before the Senate uh, on uh, on Monday evening, he basically said he, he tried to get around that by saying in the back and forth with Jeffrey Tubin, what? You know, it was a crime, an actual crime or something crime like, because, of course, the the constitutional language predates federal statutes. So there wasn't necessarily going to be a crime, a, a federal statute to point to, but something that re, that rose to the level of import of, of of a crime, I guess, is the way he said it. Yes, I think if uh, you look at the founding debates and uh, you know, I think the Democratic House managers have actually while wrapping themselves in the uh, legitimacy of the founders, really didn't do their research because if they had looked at the debates, they would have seen that 
Uh, the founders actually did talk about this situation. They were attacked, actually, during the constitutional ratification process by opponents, the anti-federalists, uh, for not having enough checks on presidential power. And the opponents, including someone like Patrick Henry, for example, said, well, what if the president misuses his power over war and foreign affairs? And they gave the example, what if the president signed a treaty that damaged the country's national interests but helped him or his region or his political party? And the defenders of the Constitution, the Federalists, clearly say that would be an impeachable offense, even though it wouldn't be criminal, even though it might not fit uh, that standard that Alan was putting out there or of something crime-like. The founders repeatedly said that that, that that kind of misuse of a constitutional power could be grounds for impeachment. Now, my, my, the reason I come out sort of in the same area, though, or the same result is because, to me, that means that that, uh, that misuse of executive power or constitutional has to be seriously harmful uh, to the country, like treason or bribery, or as the founders gave examples of, of uh, entering into treaties that damage the national interest, or, or they also mentioned entering into wars. Uh, that were not in the national interest. But they would not have thought, I think, this kind, even if everything that Democrats say is true about the facts, they wouldn't have thought this Ukraine mess would have been something that seriously harmed the country that justified removing a president during an election year. I, I want to uh, pick up on that point. Uh, when we return, we're talking to John Yu, who's a law professor at the University of California, Berkeley, about uh, impeachment. We'll be back with more of the professor right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. We're back with Professor John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at AEI, American Enterprise Institute, and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. And, Professor, you were saying before the break that taking the, the founder's standard and applying it to this fact pattern in the case before us, before the nation right now, you don't think that they would have found this to be something that they were contemplating when it comes to an impeachable offense. And, I mean, it, 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 part of that is just if, if, if you had to do substantial harm to the country in order to be held for impeachment and removal, then where's the substantial harm when you have a president that ultimately— provided aid that was supported by those very individuals who are seeking to remove him from office. Yes, I think uh, that's a really good point. And that's why the founders, I think, wisely gave uh, the power to the Senate rather than the House to choose removal. Uh, They were worried, in fact, that the House, which is supposed to directly represent the people most closely elected every two years, majority by majority representation, uh, you look at Alexander Hamilton writing about impeachment. He says impeachment is going to become partisan. It's going to bring out the worst in people, the worst in our politics, and the community will be disrupted and driven apart. They hoped that the Senate would bring a more mature judgment. And especially because if you look at the Senate, they do a lot of other things. They ratify treaties. They approve Supreme Court justices. They hoped the Senate would be more reflective, more deliberate. And that's also why they framers required a two-thirds standard to remove the president. And so, yes, you could say the House could try to uh, attack a president for misusing foreign affairs power. Sometimes some of those senators might have been involved in it. Sometimes those members of the House might be involved with it. But those senators and those members of the House thought that they were doing was good national policy. And they um, 
they also thought, you know, look at the con- this is another thing. Look at the consequences. Did the United States actually harm Ukraine? Did we actually pursue a policy that hurt our own national interests? If you believe that uh, supporting Ukraine more vigorously and providing them with lethal weapons to oppose Russian aggression, then you compare the Trump administration to the Obama administration. The Trump administration has actually done more for Ukraine, and in that sense, maybe farther pursued the national interest than President Obama had. How much does the fact that there is an election, how much would that have impacted their assessment of uh, this impeachment, uh, of pursuing impeachment, that plus the sort of sprint to get this moved along uh, so that it was on an election timeline rather than on a truth-seeking timeline? I think the founders would have been disappointed in what we've seen uh, for both reasons that you mentioned. First, they thought the main check on presidential power, and they say it repeatedly, was the elections. They thought that if the people dislike a president, if they don't like his policies, even think he's bad at his job, or that he's abused his powers in various ways, the American people should render their own verdict at the ballot box, and they can do that both Uh, voting against his party in Congress and putting in an opposition party and then ultimately voting the president out of office. Uh, I think they would have been surprised to see an impeachment trial conducted during an election year. The American people will have their voice heard in just a few months. And then I think they really would have been disappointed in this rush to uh, to judgment, the uh, truncated, uh, hurried investigation conducted by the House. And you see the defects of it. Uh, if it's true that, for example, John Bolton should have been called as a witness, he should have been called by a witness in the House, and the House should have taken its time, worked out all the executive privilege fights, and then had the opportunity to interview all the witnesses uh, that would have allowed for a thorough investigation rather than kicking it over to the Senate and then trying to use the Senate sort of as an investigatory body rather than the trial court, which is what the framers intended it to be. And so uh, how do you receive the arguments that have been made, I think perhaps most persuasively by Patrick Philbin, who's White House deputy counsel, about the um, the due process violations, if I can use that term, uh, throughout the process, the president not uh, being uh, allowed to have, have representation during the both the secret uh, House Intel Committee hearings and then the public House Intel Committee hearings, sort of a, a phony baloney due process offer by Jerry Nadler that was unconstitutional, as Patrick Philbin explained. And uh, and then now, as you were just describing, now push it over to the Senate and the Senate's supposed to come back and do the things that the House didn't. And uh, and Philbin says, actually, the remedy is not for us, the Senate, to do the job of the House. The remedy is to acquit. You know, I, I think I differ a little bit there in that uh, the Constitution itself doesn't require due process. It doesn't. It's interesting. This, this, the Constitution just says the House shall be the sole, you know, con- con- conduct the impeachment, and then the Senate will be the sole trier. And the Supreme Court has actually said in similar cases where people said my impeachment was a violation of my due process rights. The Supreme Court says we're not getting involved in that. That's out to the House and the mm-hmm. Senate to decide mm-hmm. how to run the proceedings. So I think they're allowed to do But I think the, the deeper message is if the Senate believes that a president has been treated unfairly by the House, if they don't think the House has pursued the right process, yes, then I think the Senate could just dismiss solely on that ground and say we're not even going to think about the substance of the merits because we suspect the impeachment process itself as conducted by the House 
was fundamentally corrupted. There's also this, this, this sort of norm, though. I mean, even though I, I concede your point about uh, what the Constitution requires, and it doesn't require uh, the House to uh, provide due process, but there is this cultural norm, and it's a constitutional norm, too. And when I think the American public sees it suspended for the president by the opposition party, it just doesn't sort of comport with our sense of fairness when it comes to the justice system, even in a political environment. I quite agree with you. In fact, I I wrote an article uh, when the impeachment process started in the House saying even though the House doesn't have to provide fairness, it should bend over backwards to provide fairness because what the House has to do is not just eventually vote on two articles of impeachment. They have to persuade the Senate and actually the American people that a president should be removed from office, the most drastic remedy in the Constitution. And to do that, they would have given themselves more legitimacy and we would have had more confidence in them if they had taken their time and given the president every right he wanted and even more, given more rights than he asked for. That's the way they should have done it instead of right, they did an impeachment without a bipartisan staff. And they really essentially did it in one to two months. If you go back to Watergate, and that investigation in the House took over a year and had bipartisan staff and went, you know, they bent over backwards to give President Nixon every chance to participate in the proceedings. So I agree. It's a terrible mistake that the House impeachment managers made to run it this way, although I don't think the Constitution demanded anything. I think it's more a, political, a, a good political point. John Yu, professor of law at University of California, Berkeley, visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and visiting fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford John, uh, Professor Yu, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your insights. Oh, sure. Anytime. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And, uh, more United States Space Force controversy. Last week it was about the, uh, the uniforms uh, and the, that the fact they were camouflaged uniform uniforms across the armed services and people making all kinds of jokes about camouflage in space. But, of course, the Space Force is a terrestrial operation uh, under the United States Air Force. The Space Force is mostly in, uh, in the business of satellite acquisition and control not doing dogfights with Cylons or trying to take out the Death Star goofballs. And now we have one over the logo, which President Trump unveiled on Friday because it looks eerily like the Starfleet Command logo, you know, the United Federation of Planets from Star Trek. And this, so this was the buzz on Twitter and social media. But actually, you know, you can always count on the Trekkies to set the record straight. One Star Trek fan site uh, claims that actually the Starfleet the Starfleet logo never appeared in the original Star Trek or Star Trek The Next Generation series. It wasn't even created until after the Air Force's logo during the fourth season of Deep Space Nine around 1996. So in point of fact, it doesn't look like the government stole the logo from Star Trek, but maybe Star Trek stole the logo from America's Air Force Space Command, which was, was which was founded in 1982, even though it's just taking form now under this president. And just interesting. Uh, and I point this out because, number one, you had a Star Trek fan correct the record in classic Star Trek fan fashion. But also because you had George Takai, he won't go away, taking up this idea that the Space Force had stolen the logo from Star Trek and uh, tweeting out that he expected some royalties from from this. And, of course, it calls to mind somebody we don't want to go away, 
And that's Captain James Tiberius Kirk. On your horse farm, all right, how many saddle-bred horses do you have? Uh, 34. Wait, wait, is that including the colt that was born earlier this week? <laughs> that mayor had a foal? Tuesday. Well, I guess it's 35 then. All right, it? all right. You know, before I, I answer any more questions, there's something I wanted to say. I, I, having received all your letters over the years, and, and, and I've spoken to many of you, and some of you have traveled, you know, hundreds of miles uh, to be here, I'd just like to say, get a life, will you, people? I mean, I mean, I, I mean for, for crying out loud, it's, it's just a TV show. <laughs> I mean, look at you. Look at the way you're dressed. Uh, you, 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 you've turned an enjoyable little job that I did as a lark for a few uh, years into a colossal waste of time. I mean, I mean, how old are you people? What have you done with yourselves? You, you, you must be almost 30. Have you, have you ever kissed a girl? <laughs> think so. There's a, there's a whole world out there. When I was your age, I didn't watch television. I lived. So move out of your parents' basements and get your own apartments and, and grow the hell up. I mean, it's just a TV show, damn it. It's just a TV show. Now, that message is not to the Star Trek fan who corrected the record, but to George Sakai, definitely. This is the damn project. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.